We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, and wherever you find your podcasts. Today, I have an extra bonus episode, which sits alongside our regular edition, because I want to talk about something special. I normally talk to other therapists about their work, but today I'm responding to requests from listeners to throw more light on my own work as a therapist. What's more, you can sample that work even if you don't live in Berlin, because I've developed an online course which you can access wherever you are, when you need it, and at the pace that makes sense for you and your partner. I call it my best relationships tools because that's what it is. So in this bonus episode, I'm going to be interviewed by my producer, Michael Dooney. I have no idea what he's going to ask me, so I'm feeling a bit nervous. But Michael, over to you. Oh, thanks for the introduction, Andrew. And good to be on the podcast, I think for the third time, actually. Yeah, we've done a episode where you talked about having a child after a long temp sense of trying. I think it was recorded a couple of weeks after your child was born. Yeah, she was only a few weeks old, I think. So. And now you've got two children. <laughs> I do, yes. I didn't expect another one to arrive. So I guess the first one took five years to conceive and the second one, five months. So, <laughs> Well, congratulations for being a father for a second time. And there's also one of the episodes where we look back at the year and what we both learned from it. Yeah, that's right. And I actually picked up some of the books from a few of your guests. I bought the one from Philippa Perry about what you wish your parents knew and what your children hope that you know, or there's something to that effect. So so you actually probably listen closer to all of the episodes than I do. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, I was looking back over it. You know, you've done more than 170 episodes of the podcast now, Andrew. I mean, it's extraordinary. And I've learned so much. I think it's actually deepened the way I work. And the really weird part of it is, nine times out of 10, I organise a guest just because they sound interesting. And then generally a couple of weeks before they come on, I suddenly find several of my clients are actually dealing with exactly that issue. And it just gives me some extra material and tools to bring to the session. So I actually use the podcast a lot with my clients. I say, well, I've got an episode on this, have a listen to it, and then we discuss it and some of the ideas, and then we work on those and develop them. So it has changed the way I work myself as a therapist. And the same for my team, because my team also listen to the episodes and often recommend them to their clients as well. Yeah. What inspired you to start a podcast in the first place? It was what was happening in lockdown. I sort of suddenly started thinking about what makes my life meaningful when all the things that normally give us meaning are taken away when you're stuck in your own flat and you can't go out. So I really started thinking of, you know, what does make my life meaningful? And I sort of knew that I couldn't answer that question on my own. And I thought, 
why don't I get some of the best brains together and speak to them? And obviously, they are not just going to speak to me if I haven't got an audience. So I decided to put together the podcast. And I'd had many years in the past working on the radio where I would interview people. And I used to really enjoy having a conversation with people and learning about people. And when I was sort of effectively locked in my apartment, I remembered how good that felt and how important it was to reach out to people, often people who come from entirely different places and different backgrounds. So I sort of thought this is the answer to what I need and what's been extraordinary. It's been what lots of other people need too. <laughs> yeah. Well, when did you shift then from being on the radio to becoming a marital therapist? Well, for a long time, I did the two things side by side because um, oh. on the radio, I was the host of a personal problem program. I had a, a panel of experts who would answer the problems. And what I discovered is that skills of a journalist are part of the skills of a therapist. So curiosity, trying to understand, well, that's a huge part of therapy. So I would draw out the people who were phoning in with their problems, and I would summarise what had been said. And summarising what you've done is another important part of therapy. So I discovered I had quite a lot of the skills. And radio had always been my hobby. And then when I left university, it became my profession. And I felt a terribly sort of one-dimensional person. So the phrase, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, <laughs> I thought I would do something simply for pleasure. Now, that's what I did consciously. Now, nearly 40 years later, I'm thinking about what I was unconsciously doing too. And unconsciously, you know, I had issues myself to sort out. And as Terry Reel says, one of my most listened to episodes, therapists become therapists because they need therapy so much, they have to be <laughs> in therapy full time. Once a week is not enough. Oh, so you mean you think you were drawn to doing marital therapy through your own introspection and needing to understand what was happening with yourself? Yeah, I think on a deep level, I needed to make sense of my own family and I needed to do quite a bit of healing myself. So that was the unconscious reason. I thought that I was actually just stopping myself from just being in a rut. And for many years, I did one evening of therapy and full-time radio at the same time. And then I left the radio world and started becoming a, a journalist. And, and I would write about uh, therapy. I wrote a book. And just after I wrote, I love you, but I'm not in love with you, the demand to come and see me was so great. I thought, hang on, I'll set up my own private practice rather than working for Relate, which is the UK's largest counselling charity, which is what I worked for for the first half of my career. Yeah, because I often wonder how people get into, like marital therapy is quite a specific branch, if that's the right word, of therapy. How did you decide I'll be a marital therapist as opposed to just doing one-on-one -on -one therapy or doing like a specific philosophy, like doing analysis or doing CBT or doing something like that? 
I think that I was called to it. I had a guest who was, in those days, it was called the Marriage Guidance Council. So this was in the Stone Age as far as Relate is concerned. We had a marital therapist come on the radio phone-in that I was the producer of. I remember listening to her talking to people about their problems, and I was shaking There was something in this that was so emotionally powerful for me that I could feel my all my my legs were jiggling, my hands were jiggling like I'm doing now. This was something that was so incredibly powerful. And so I thought we should do a whole personal problem program, which was done on this radio station called Essex Radio. I think we're talking about 1985 or something like that. (laughs) So we're talking a very long time back. And so I invited people from Relate and various other organisations and doctors and vicars to be on the panel. And I was really inspired by the work of these therapists, these couple therapists, and it felt like that's what I wanted to do. Little did I realise that I was choosing the toughest kind of work because your client is the couple, the relationship. So you've got two sets of information. You've got what, in the classic situation, the wife is saying, what the husband is saying, and what the relationship is saying. So you've got three sets of material, all of which are interacting with you. When you're doing one-on-one work, you've just got one set of information. So I'm having to process a huge amount of extra information. So I didn't realise I was choosing the most difficult branch, but there you are. That's what I decided to do. Yeah. And how was it at the start then? Because I guess it would have been quite a switch from handling calls on the radio to having two separate individuals that are in a relationship and then having to mediate between them in a therapy setting. Well, I had spent many years previously being a journalist, and so journalists have to ask questions. So... I could always ask another question. And because radio programs have a fixed length of time, you can't carry past on the news, you can't crash that. I was good at managing time as well. So I had (laughs) most of the skills I needed. You know, listening and encouraging people to talk is a huge part of the therapy. It was only later I had the confidence to start putting together my own system and thinking of particular tools that people could use. You know, I learned all of these things on the coalface with couples. Everything that I do has been road tested and the stuff that works stays. The stuff that doesn't work or only works for a few people gets dropped by the wayside. And what I realised was I've got sort of about six standby things that I do with basically everybody because these are common traps that lots of people fall into. And that's why I've sort of put them together into this course that I'm going to offer. Because I think that everybody could benefit from knowing these skills, which are basically communication skills. Okay. And so this is your My Best Relationship Tools online course that you've developed? Yes. There's four modules, so each one is basically a a therapy hour, 
and I look at a different topic on each of them. And the idea is you can do them at the pace that works for you. You can do them with your partner and discuss them afterwards. You can do them separately. If your partner's not interested in doing it, you can still learn the skills yourself because if you change, it will change the dynamic in your relationship and you don't have to necessarily say to your partner, do this, do that. By you changing, that's going to have an impact on the way they respond and that's going to change the dynamic. Okay. And can you tell us what the six categories are that you typically work with or what you're covering in the course? Well, I, I've pulled the number six slightly out of a hat, <laughs> but I can certainly take you through what's in each of the different modules. So the first one is sort of about understanding communication, basically, talking about some of the common traps that people fall into. And if you listen to my episode with Terry Real, we talk about one of these and we had, when we spoke, different approaches to it. So one of the common traps that people fall into is, I'm right and you're wrong. So they try and resolve a dispute by working out who is right and who is wrong. We all do it. Are you prepared to put your hand up? Do you have a, uh, an I'm right and you're wrong arguments ever with your wife? Well, I've listened to more than 170 episodes of The Meaningful Life, so I've, <laughs> I've picked up a few trickle along the way. <laughs> but what I was going to ask, because you know, from my own experience, when I have a fight with my partner and they give their version of things, it's so easy to stop and say, well, you got this fact wrong here and no, I didn't mean that. And you're not actually really listening because you're saying you're wrong. It's not like this. This is the version that happened. And you get into this dispute that actually amplifies and never actually solves anything. And Terry said, when I get couples doing I'm right, you're wrong. I just say, we're having a game of I'm right, you're wrong. Stop. Yeah. Let's do something different. And I said, well, actually, I'm more patient with them. I give them a chance to have the fight and we'll see if, you know, maybe this time we might get a, a chink of light. But, you know, I'll give them more space to do it. And he said, I've run out of patience with that. <laughs> <laughs> and what I discovered is after almost 40 years, I've run out of patience too with I'm right and you're wrong doesn't stop couples from actually trying to do it. But, you know, I just say, you know, I'm too old for this. Let's try yeah. something else. And then you have the immediate interesting question, what are we going to do differently? So we look in the, the first one about some of the common traps, like I'm right and you're wrong. But what we do in, in quite a lot of detail is we do the alternative, which is something that I call reflective listening. So instead of actually when my partner says, you did X, Y, Z, instead of actually saying, no, I didn't, you reflect back what they said. So they really feel like they were heard. So when you say reflecting back, can you give me an example of what you would do? So perhaps we can, we can do a little exercise here. Can you Pretend that you and I are in a relationship and you can tell me about something that's upsetting you at the moment. Andrew, I can't believe you leave your shoes next to the front door all the time when I tell you, please don't leave your shoes there. So what you're saying is you get upset because I leave my shoes by the door all the time and you've asked me not to do this before. Is that right? That's correct. Is there more? 
you know that it really stresses me out and I like the house to be a little bit tidy. All I ask is that you put the shoes in the little place that we have where they go rather than leaving them where I'm going to trip over them. So what you're saying is you've asked me many times you would, and it really stresses you out and upsets you and you would like me to put them in the special place that we have rather than leave them where you're going to trip over them. Is that right? That's right. Is there more? And we would continue like this until you run out of things to say or you felt that you'd <laughs> been heard or you wanted to hear my response and then I could tell you why I don't do it or how I would I'm trying to do it or I'm just too I could give you all my reasons. But what is important is two things. While I'm trying to remember what you're saying, I'm listening better because I'm not preparing my defence about how I'm working really hard and I've got very little time and I forget and, you know, I don't feel appreciated, all of that stuff. I'm not actually defending myself. I'm actually hearing things like how upset you are. But when it comes to my turn to communicate, it tends to make me a better communicator too, because what I'm getting people to do is talk in short pieces. Our yeah. tendency is to chunk. And so you're upset about my behaviour and you might talk for, I don't know, three minutes on it and give me 30 pieces of information. And obviously I can't take all of those in and I can't actually work out exactly what it is you're upset about because you might be justifying yourself, et cetera, et cetera. And in those 30 things, there might be one or two that are really important that I'm actually missing because I don't see the pieces of gold amongst the straw, so to speak, that I've heard many times before. So because I'm, you know that I'm going to be summarising, you're keeping it short. So you're actually communicating a bit better. You're thinking a little bit more about what it is you actually say. So actually, we're having both people really focusing on the giving and the receiving. It's also slowing the whole conversation down. I'm not rushing ahead to try and solve this problem. I'm just listening to you. Yeah. And that helps a lot. I think also you, you're not reacting then to the other person, you're responding. Exactly. So I might be upset, I might be feeling attacked and everything else like that, but I know that I've just got to listen. And so instead of my defensiveness coming up, I'm actually listening. And so that's actually getting me going into a, a better place. And I'm ha really having to listen to myself and my feelings rather than just splurge them out because the task is to listen to you and you're upset. And then when it comes to my turn, I can say, I'm upset too because I don't feel appreciated about ABC. But I have actually not only listened to you in that period, I could be listening to the feelings inside myself as well. So slowing it down is really important. There's a lot more to this than we can cover at this point, but the producer of the course does a similar exercise and we both go backwards and forwards and I explain all the rules and break it down. Reflective listening is something I do with every single client. A lot of them say, yeah, it's useful, but it's not natural. And my response is, how's natural working for you? Yeah. <laughs> so if sometimes you can actually 
use the technique, you're not going to be responding to each other, you know, what's for breakfast? Oh, you're asking me what's for breakfast <laughs> sort of kind of stuff. But when you've got a dispute, it's a good thing to say, let's do, or my clients say, let's do Andrew's tool and off they go. I explained in great detail in the first episode. Episode two is about why couples get stuck. And we look in detail at the drama triangle. You'll find there is an absolute actual episode of The Meaningful Life about the drama triangle, but I've developed it further and I explain the other levels of it in my course. So the idea of the drama triangle is that there are three positions in a triangle. And we know that triangles are incredibly strong and they're difficult to break. They build bridges out of them because they can take a lot of pressure. And the three positions in the drama triangle are victim, rescuer, and perpetrator. So the person who feels hard done by, the person who's trying to make them feel better, and the person who has upset them. Now, the thing about the triangle is you go round the triangle. So both of you are going round the triangle. There are three places in it, even though there's only two of you. So when I'm in the hard done by place, so let's say it was me that felt that you leaving your shoes was actually an act of aggression. You know, you're doing it on purpose. You know it upsets me and you're still doing it. Can you hear my victimhood coming forward? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm in this victim place. These horrible people are doing these nasty things to get me. Now, I'm so angry, I could start shouting at you about this. You know, not just because of this, but, you know, the children have been doing this, that and the other. I haven't slept very much. You've got small children. You know where, how you can go from the place of victim to the place of persecutor because you're in such a bad place, you're going to give it out there. You've been backed into a corner. Yes, you've been backed into the corner. You can't be angry with your children because, let's face it, they're too young to understand that you need to go to sleep. But you can be angry with your wife for not understanding you. So very easily you can get into the perpetrator position where you're doing things that is that you don't, well, you might mean to actually at that point, you might be so angry you want to hurt them, or you might be doing it unwittingly, but you're going into that position. And what's happening a lot of the time is we try to solve our partner's feelings. We try and rescue them from it. So, for example, they are upset with us, so about the fact we've left our shoes in the hallway, and we want to try and rescue them, make it all better rather than listening to them. So that's where the rescuer position comes in. And often, if you spend a lot of time rescuing, because you can't actually rescue people, if you do, you leave them still in the victim place, you get so fed up with rescuing, you move across into the perpetrating position. So you, you can see how you can move around. And, you know, after sounding off about the fact that I'm doing all these things to try and make things better and I'm not appreciated, you can see I've now gone into the victim place. Yeah. And I'm expecting my partner to rescue me. So I explain about this triangle and this is really powerful because people can begin to see where they're going in their arguments and they can find a way to break the triangle. And I explain 
in each position how to break out of the drama triangle and go into the winner's triangle, because in the drama triangle there's no good position, but in the winner's triangle all the positions are good, so it doesn't matter if you're moving around them. How do you move from the drama triangle to the winner's triangle, I hear you ask? You need the skills triangle, and that's my thing that I've added to this, the, what the skills are that you need to move from the drama triangle to the winner's triangle. And we explain that in great detail. Oh, good. I remember that episode, actually. And I think it's probably also an interesting exercise in self-awareness that we always perceive of ourselves to be one of these character types. You're always the victim or you're always the aggressor or the rescuer, but we all take turns being in the different roles and we might not necessarily realise it. So I think that's probably one that all of us, in fact, can probably benefit from. Yes. And I often get a lot of clients tell me that they're both competing to be in the victim place. You know, I'm a bigger victim than you are, sort of kind of thing, <laughs> which, as you can imagine, doesn't make for a happy relationship. No. And so if you get some tools about how you get out of the victim place rather than waiting for somebody to rescue you or turning into a perpetrator and sort of feeling a little bit better for a couple of seconds because you've dumped a whole pile of poo on somebody else, but actually it's only a momentarily sense of feeling better because your relationship is in a crisis and how good are you going to feel when your relationship is in a crisis? That's so right. I go into that idea in an awful lot more depth. Oh, and by the way, with each of these episodes or each of these modules of the best relationship tools, if there's a podcast, we have a link in this homework to do with each of the modules and there's some sheets to download and in there there's details of the episodes of The Meaningful Life that are useful to listen to too. So that's the first two modules. What's the next one? The next one is on new ways of approaching conflict. And we look at assertiveness, which is all about negotiating. What is interesting I, when I do negotiating with my clients is they sort of have a good idea about how to do it in a business situation, but they're not quite so clear about how to do it in a relationship situation. Oh, why do you think that is? I think it's because at work, the emotional content, the emotional investment is quite small. But when it's in your relationship, suddenly it, it really counts. If your boss doesn't give you what you want, you don't think they don't love you. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's a good point. So what do you think are the three or actually, I think I've got four outcomes from a negotiation when you and your partner have different takes on something. If I just think about negotiations in general, I suppose I win, you lose, you win, I lose, we both win, we both lose. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking for ones where both people, because we're in a relationship, both of us are feeling that we're winning or we've got something that we can live with. So I'll give you a help for the first one is you could come up with a compromise. What, what do you think of the other ones? But these are solutions where we both win? Yes. So a compromise is we've both got a bit of what we want. The example I always use is we're going to the movies. I want to see one film. You want to see another film. So we could have a compromise and go and see a third film that isn't either our first choice, but would be both of our second choice. Yeah. 
The second one is a trade. So we'll see your film this week and we'll see my film the next week, for example. Or we'll see your film, but I can choose what restaurant we're going to afterwards. So that would be a trade. You'd get your film and I'd get my Chinese, whereas you prefer Italian. So, But we would both win in some way. So we have a compromise, a trade. The third one is we find agreement. So we discuss it for long enough and we, rather than me just giving in, so that's a fake agreement. You know, I don't want to upset you, so we'll go and see your film. That's a fake agreement. But maybe if we sit and and talk for a little bit and you tell me that the film you want to see is from the film of a book that your book club are discussing this coming month, I don't know that, then, you know, I might actually think, well, your needs are greater than mine. You don't want to be the only person in the group that hasn't seen the film. So, yes, of course, we'll see yours. So we agree because in the debate, you've made your point so well that I'm going to agree. But I've done it because I feel that you've got a good case rather than I just want to make you happy. Yeah. And then the fourth one is to find a third way. And this is for the sort of deeper things. I mean, with the movie question, we can sort of get a solution to that one quite easily. But if it's a deeper one, like, shall we have children or not? You can't compromise on that. You can't have half a child or, you know, have a child one week and send them off to their grandparents the week after sort of kind of thing. So that's going to be a much longer discussion to find a win-win solution. And sometimes it's a question of finding a third way, or it's about going deeper and deeper into what each of you want from something, which is finding a win-win solution. So we are going deep enough to find the point where you find some form of agreement. There's a podcast on that one as well. I should probably listen to that one again. So that's episode three. And then the final one is we look at healing. And the most important thing I want to say about healing is that to heal, you have to become authentic. Okay. And what do, when you say authentic, what do you mean? We use this word a lot, or we always hear it, oh, that person's a bit inauthentic, or they're not very authentic, or that's a very authentic person. Well, I'm wanting you to be authentic with your emotions. So if you're feeling angry, you're allowed to be angry, and you're allowed to bring that anger, not acting it out, which would be, you know, maybe throwing your shoes across the floor. <laughs> or shouting at you, or maybe even at this precise moment, I think I would like to throw them out the window. Yeah. (laughs) That's acting it out. Whereas I can be authentic, not, I don't want to be inauthentic, pretending I don't care about this and fuming and then blowing my top three days later because I've been saving up all of these little things that you do and then I've exploded. But by reporting it, so... I feel when you, because I feel angry when you leave your shoes on the floor. So you're pleased to know that I'm feeling angry, not bitter or resentful or whatever it is. And it's not all the time. It's when you do something in particular, which is leave your shoes in the middle of the hallway. Because, and I tell you why, because otherwise you might think it's seeing it as an act of rebellion or because you don't care. No, it's because I've asked you to do it several times beforehand. 
So I report, I feel angry when you leave your shoes out because I've asked you to put them away before. And that's being authentic. And we find it incredibly difficult to be authentic because basically, certainly this is my experience, I was brought up to be a good boy and do what my parents wanted. And they certainly didn't want an angry boy. So I was not authentic with my anger. I'm still struggling, to be perfectly honest, to be authentic with my anger. I'd much rather swallow it. Yeah. But you can't heal until you're authentic. And in fact, one of the other parts of healing is to actually be comfortable with anger and find the right relationship with it and have what I describe as healthy anger. I go into this a, a lot in the in the fourth module. Oh, good. So I think you can see that it's sort of quite comprehensive. It would normally take me about three months to work this through with a couple of the, these units. So there's quite a lot of material. So you can just take in a bit at a time and think about it. And the idea is that you wait a, probably a week or two weeks between moving on to the next section so that it's in a way a bit like being in therapy. Oh, so you don't binge the videos, you watch one. So how else is it constructed? Do you have like worksheets and like exactly, other tools yeah. for people to use? Yeah. So you have the worksheets. I go through everything. You could discuss it with your partner. And then over the next week, you can try and use some of those ideas. Oh, so the idea is to do it as a couple when you go through or is this for people separately? Yeah, you can, as I say, you can either do it, both watch it at the same time or you could watch it and then because, you know, if you've got small children, you're probably doing everything in shifts and then you can talk yeah. about it later. Maybe when you've had separate time to watch it, but then you come together on Sunday night when they're in bed and you compare yeah. notes and talk about it or something. I mean, it's it's flexible like this. You can do it when you want to. And obviously, unlike with a therapist, you can stop me and rewind me, so to speak. <laughs> And is it geared towards couples at any particular stage in their relationship? Is this more for people that have been married for a while, people that have that are getting serious? If some people are listening and thinking, oh, we've not been together long enough, or I've been together so long, this isn't going to work. Mm. My question would be, why are you feeling so <laughs> fatalistic? Because <laughs> I believe that anybody and everybody can change. Occasionally, clients will actually say to me, do you think people can change <laughs> really honestly? And I say, yes, because otherwise I wouldn't be doing this. You know, I'm a creative, talented person. I could do other things. I do this because I really believe in it. So I don't think you're ever too late to change. And these skills are skills you need in life. You do know, need to know how to communicate, how to listen. You might not be married to somebody. You might want to improve your relationship with your grown-up children and not do the victim-rescuer-perpetrator triangle with your grown-up children. I would say it's useful for everybody. We're all in relationships. Yeah. Well, I think the reflective listening is useful probably in all aspects of life. And as you say, we're always, we're in lots of different relationships, but we also have to, we have to be good communicators and to not be getting angry and to not have to repress our emotions and to be able to live more authentically. A lot of that is about how we 
carry ourselves and a lot of that is about communication. And really listening to ourselves and give ourselves permission to have our feelings. It seems like the most basic idea, but so often we try and minimise our own feelings. You know, we say, oh, that's not important. And, you know, if it's actually just about what film you're going to see, maybe that actually isn't, but it may be part of a bigger pattern. You're minimising your feelings on a regular basis and you just reach the point where you snap and then you turn into somebody who must be obeyed. And that's not good either. No. I can't remember if it was sort of one of your guests that I remember hearing talking about this as well when when it comes to emotions and maybe expressing them more freely or at least acknowledging them is that our emotions are like the master volume and you can't just turn one of them down. They all get turned down at the same time. So when you're repressing your anger, you're repressing your frustration, that'll affect how able you are then to express how happy you are and how other parts of your personality come through because your body or your your mind doesn't know that oh we're just turning down the bad ones it's like no we're just we're turning down emotions so they all get turned down and what i would also want to say is i agree with you 100% but one of the central ideas is there are no bad feelings our feelings mm, are telling yes. us something so anger is not a bad feeling it's just probably telling us a boundary is being crossed yeah, that's right. There are, uh, there are inconvenient feelings. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of inconvenient feelings. <laughs> uh, I love that idea. There's an episode called What is the Feeling Trying to Tell You? And that's a, a really good episode that I would recommend to people too. Um, it's a really core idea that we listen to our feelings they might be thought as unreasonable by other people, but actually it's trying to tell you something about you. And so you have to listen to your feelings and try and, you know, work out what is this feeling trying to tell me? And nearly always it's something important. Yeah. I think since probably hearing some of those and then practicing more mindfulness, there have been moments, I think, where I've it had the experience where you sort of step back from yourself and you realize, wow, I'm getting really angry now why am I getting angry? Rather than just reacting, you realise you see yourself getting angry and you think, what is it about this, what this other person is doing that's really upsetting me now? And then I suppose having that then gives you like the extra few seconds to do the reflective listening, to be more present and not react to it the way that you normally would, but more respond to the situation and not be annoyed at yourself afterwards or not think, oh, I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have done that. So instead of going into the drama triangle, you go into the winner's triangle. So if you'd like to find more details about this, it's andrewgmarshall.com forward slash tools will give you all the details. The course is normally £129.50, but we're doing a special introductory offer of £99.50 pence. In dollars, that's around $126, and in euros, it's about €116. Euros. And the link will be in the show notes? The link will be in the show notes. Um, you're a professional at this. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michael, thank you very much for interviewing me. I don't know if there's anything more you want to know. 
I think in addition to the course, you also had a practical guide that people could also get a hold of. Yeah, there's a download about how to discuss difficult topics, the sort of things that we want to say but probably shouldn't, and a different way of actually approaching that topic rather than just not mentioning it at all, which is often the other alternative. And that's a free download. It's a a short piece you can uh, have and you can go to the website andrewgmarshall.com and its download is the word that you need. Or, But if you go to the, the website, you'll find how to download it. And that will be in the show notes too. Oh, perfect. I was just going to say that it's really good that you're putting these courses out there, Andrew. And I know myself, I've learned a lot from, from listening to every episode of the show. And it's really nice you're also making the making the material available to a wider audience because marital therapy and therapy in general isn't as accessible as some people would like it to be. And having the option to at least do a course, I think, is a great way to have a toolkit to start making changes. And looking ahead, we've got some great topics coming up. We're going to be looking at how do I know when if I need therapy or not. That's a very helpful episode. So thank you very much, Michael, for for interviewing me today and helping me with this program. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.